brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. War has played a key role in the history of the United States, from the nation's founding right down to the present. War made the U.S. independent, kept it together, increased its size, and established it as a global superpower. Understanding America's wars is essential for understanding American history. Welcome to Key Battles of American History, a podcast in which we discuss American history through the lens of the most important battles of America's wars. Here is your host, James Early. Welcome back to Key Battles of the Pacific Theater, World War II. This is your host, James Early, and I've got my trusty, rusty co-host, Dr. Scott Rank. How are you, sir? Doing well, good, sir. All right. Well, I've got, uh, this is going to be a great episode. In fact, a pair of episodes. We are now on episode 21, and we're not even anywhere near done. We're, I mean, we're getting kind of close to the end, but uh, we're going to be talking about the largest naval battle in world history ever, and it's the Battle of Leyte Gulf. And we will also discuss briefly the American recapture of the Philippines, which goes along with Leyte Gulf. This is key battle number seven. It is massive. It is epic. It has tons of moving parts. And we are going to spend quite a bit of time on this one, aren't we, Scott? Yeah, I mean, this one, it just has everything where... Like you said, it's the largest naval battle in history. So take that Thermopylae, take that Lepanto. You have nothing on Leyte Gulf. Um, and it's also kind of a, it's a passing of the torch of naval tactics because uh, like we talked about earlier in the series, some old-fashioned admirals thought the battleship was still how you build your naval tactics. But as we see, that's not the case. It's really about aircraft carriers. Well, we're going to see some old-fashioned battleship tactics here. We're going to see some... Area uh, aircraft engagement. It's sort of like, I don't know, uh, Michael Jordan's last All-Star game where there's a young rookie named Kobe Bryant who's playing too. Uh, so it's, uh, or you're seeing the very last blockbuster video store before the entire franchise is wiped out or the final telegraph that's sent from an Indian post office only 10 years ago. Just um, all sorts of final things and then end of one era and a beginning of another. Yeah, we're definitely going to go old school for a while. Sure. And let's recap before we jump into it. So in our last episode, we talked about another massive naval battle, which was one of the naval, largest naval battles in history up to till that point. And that was the Battle of the Philippine Sea. And in that battle, the Americans gained 
able, naval and air superiority around the Marianas chain of islands. And as we saw in the episode before that, the Battle of Saipan, they took the island of Saipan and then later took the nearby islands of Tinian and Guam. And this gave the Americans now bases from which American bombers could fly to Japan itself, to the home islands, and bomb Japan and then fly back. So that was a major turning point. Huge naval battle. And again, it was a multiple, uh, multi-sided, multifaceted operation. We, the sea battle was going, the uh, Philippine Sea was going on at the same time as the land battle, which was Saipan, and then, of course, Tinian and Guam. And now we're getting into something even bigger. It's just like the Americans keep saying, nope, that, that wasn't big enough. We need a bigger. <laughs> we need more, more, more. And so after June, uh, the, the Americans had another decision to make. What was going to be the next major target? So on July 28th, 1944, President Roosevelt visited Pearl Harbor. He flew all the way out to Hawaii, and there he conferred with Admiral Nimitz and General MacArthur, who were the two, I guess, co-commanders in the Pacific. Nimitz was the overall commander of the Central Pacific Offensive, which had been kicked off fairly recently, about a year ago. And MacArthur was the supreme commander in the Southwest Pacific. And there... The purpose of this meeting was to determine the next step in the Pacific. Also, there was another purpose, and that was, you know, Franklin Roosevelt, he was a great war leader, but he was also a politician, the consummate politician. He thought that being photographed with his two senior commanders would benefit him politically. You know, an election coming up, you got to do what you got to do. Yeah, uh, it's just amazing how... Got to win that fourth term. Yeah, you got to get that fourth term. You know, it's not enough just to break the precedent to get a third term. Oh, no, we have to have four. Uh, he's such an overachiever, isn't he, Scott? Yes, he is. I'm not going to beat the previous record just by one term. Oh, no, I'm going to get a double. Or at least that was the plan. Anyway, yeah, it's amazing how much the America, America's four-year presidential election cycle affects not only political history, but military history sometimes as well. And now that the Americans had broken through the inner defenses of Japan's empire, they had the potential to block Japan from accessing the resources of the South Pacific. And they could do so by retaking the Philippines or by capturing Formosa. Formosa is, is the island that is now called Taiwan. And Admiral King and Admiral Nimitz wanted to take Formosa, while MacArthur, well, let's see if our listeners can hmm. guess. What do you think MacArthur wanted to do? I don't, I, I don't think he would you know, bring anything personal into this. I think it was all about strategy. For, oh, for yeah, Carter. I'm sure, you know, he he probably consulted with all of his advisors and <laughs> and it wanted the best thing. No, he wanted the Philippines, of course. I know all of our listeners immediately thought that because he just has this personal thing. He, he was kicked out of the Philippines and he wants it back. He said, I shall return. And now he wants to return. In the end, Roosevelt left the decision to the Joint Chiefs of Staff who voted for the Philippines. And the invasion date of the Philippines was set for December 20th, 1944, about six months after the Philippine Sea and Saipan. Now, taking the Philippines would require close cooperation between MacArthur and Nimitz, which is... (laughs) It's going to be interesting. Uh, We will see. Those two didn't quite trust each other, and MacArthur didn't think he should have to coordinate with anybody. He just thought he should be the, the, the one supreme leader in the Pacific. 
And indeed, he was placed in overall command of the Philippines operation. Now, to support him, MacArthur would have Admiral Thomas Kincaid's 7th Fleet, which we've seen before. It was made up mostly of amphibious, transport, and supply vessels, plus several older battleships, including, I should say, five Pearl Harbor survivors. They're back. (laughs) Those ships that the Japanese thought they'd sunk are still coming back to haunt them. He also had 18 small scout carriers, also called jeep carriers. These are just small carriers who they tended to have older aircraft on them. Their job was to provide air support for the landing and to conduct anti-submarine operations. Uh, Author Ian Toll writes that this is an interesting fun fact. 90% of the seven fleets vessels had not even existed when the Japanese had taken the Philippines in 1942. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? Yeah, the war machine is in full gear right now. That just, again, speaks to how quickly that the U.S. was just whipping out ships and planes and everything. And the transports in the 7th Fleet carried 174,000 men, so quite a sizable invasion force. MacArthur would also have the 3rd Fleet supporting him. Now, this gets confusing. I think we've talked about this before, but we'll go over it again. The 3rd Fleet and the 5th Fleet are the same thing. It's, it's confusing to scholars. They weren't thinking about us, Scott, and, <laughs> and our listeners, were they? Although it's kind of funny because it, it, it confused the Japanese, and the Japanese at first thought it was two different fleets, so it kind of threw them off. But it's the same fleet, but when it was under the command of Admiral Halsey, it was called the 3rd Fleet, and when it was under the command of Admiral Spruance, it was called the 5th Fleet. I don't, know what, I don't know what happened to the 4th Fleet, but anyway... <laughs> Maybe one of our listeners can tell me that. But, um, and as we've mentioned before, Nimitz kept shuttling in and out the two overall commanders. He would send out Halsey for a while, and Halsey would lead an operation. And then Halsey would come back to Pearl Harbor and be replaced by Spruance. And while one of them was out actually commanding uh, in the field, so to speak, the other would be back in Pearl Harbor planning the next operation. We saw that Spruance was the overall commander uh, in at the Battle of the Philippine Sea in Saipan. Well, now Spruance goes back to Pearl Harbor, and Halsey arrives, and voila, the fleet magically changes to the third fleet. It's also called the Big Blue Fleet. And this fleet was the most powerful naval force ever created. It had fast battleships. It had Task Force 38, which was... Uh, Carriers, now committing primarily carriers, commanded by Admiral John McCain. And that is the... Wow, he's uh, that old? Man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Ran for president in 2004. Uh, no, what year was it? I probably lost track of it. 2008, yeah. yeah. And 2000, um, so... Now, this is actually the grandfather of, <laughs> of presidential candidate John McCain, who just passed away a few years ago. Yeah, this is his grandfather. But yeah, they had a long naval tradition in that family. And... Admiral McCain had under his command 17 carriers and their escorts, dozens of ships, and over a thousand aircraft. It just boggles the mind. Again, we think back to I think back to Midway, Scott, when we had three, <laughs> you know, and, and we knew their names. I couldn't even name all 17 of them now. So altogether, the Americans had over 300 ships, and they had obviously overwhelming superiority over the Japanese. Halsey reported to Nimitz. Not MacArthur, but he was expected to work with MacArthur. So the, again, this the chain of command, there's going to be issues with this. And there's going to be a major communication problem, which will affect the battle. And might 
almost lead to disaster. MacArthur did not allow Admiral Kincaid, who was again was temporarily under him, he did not allow Kincaid to communicate directly with Nimitz, but he made him go through the communication center at Manus, which was an island uh, to the south, and that added a minimum one to two hour delay in messages between the two fleets. And this kept MacArthur in the loop. So MacArthur knew everything that was going on, but it's going to create problems. Ah, oh, Scott, communication. <laughs> yeah, we'll see if it's worth it or not. Uh, it's, uh, that sounds like a um, Japanese Imperial fleet move right there. Some sort of rigid idea of hierarchy that um, when it actually meets the reality of the quick decisions that you have to make on the battlefield don't really hold up under scrutiny. But here we are. Nobody is perfect. Yep. All right. So let's now talk about some of the preliminary events. Prior to the attack on the Philippines, American bombers bombed Formosa to prevent any Japanese planes there from attacking the invasion force. Uh, I should say that the Japanese had a very strong air base on Formosa and, and quite a few soldiers if they made the right decision not to invade Formosa, it would have been much more difficult, I think. Not that the Philippines is going to be easy. It's going to be very difficult, too. But, but these bombing raids on Formosa did a lot of damage to Japanese planes. The Americans encountered little resistance. In these and other bombing raids, between early September and mid-October, the Japanese lost approximately 1,200 aircraft. That's amazing, 1,200 you just have to wonder, how do they have any left? But as we're going to yeah. see, they, oh, they still have quite a few. <laughs> and the obvious lack of Japanese air power convinced Admiral Halsey that the attack on the Philippines could be moved up two months. So not December, but October. MacArthur and the Joint Chiefs agreed, and so the new date was set for October 20th. On September 15th, the 1st Marine Division, woohoo, hoorah, landed on the island of Peleliu, which was in the Palau archipelago east of the Philippines. And despite stiff resistance, the Marines secured the island's airstrip within three days. The Marines were soon reinforced by the Army's 81st Division. So a familiar pattern there. The Marines jump in first, try to grab the airstrip as quickly as you can, and the Army comes in to support. But Peleliu had a natural network of caves and tunnels. The Japanese hold up in these tunnels. The Americans had to clear them out one at a time in heat that sometimes reached 115 degrees. Wow, that makes Houston seem uh, cool by comparison. <laughs> and this process took 10 weeks, so it was just brutal, uh, grueling fighting, right, Scott? Right. I mean, this is uh, something to keep in mind that the Japanese are by no means standing still, even though they're facing overwhelming air superiority. They don't have nearly the resources that the American military does. One thing that changes is when we talk about early battles, Guadalcanal and other times, there are typically bonsai charges where uh, Japanese forces meet the Americans at the beaches and try to overwhelm them with waves of bonsai charges. Instead, what changes is that they try to engage a longer battle, causing more casualties and possibly slowing down the American advance toward their, toward their home islands. So what the Japanese did is they would dig miles of tunnels, uh, which they did at Peleliu. Uh, and it was easy on this island because the, <clears throat> excuse me, the terrain uh, had features that were hidden by foliage. So it wasn't easy to spot where the entrance and exits to these tunnels were. Instead of defending beaches, they would see them to Marines and without air support, they couldn't really hold them anyway. And once ashore, they would be exposed to attacks from hidden bunkers and 
infantry tanks and hundreds of mortars and guns hidden out in this honeycomb network of caves that overlook the beaches and the airfield. So what Japanese commanders thought was that landing forces might not be destroyed or repulsed at water's edge. Instead, they would try to funnel attackers into kill zones beyond the beaches. There'd be successive lines uh, set up in the natural terrain that were camouflaged, and these would be fortified positions with interlocking fields of fire. They would be constructed on reverse slopes and uh, mass terrain. So what they would try to do is create a situation would be when Marines landed and then later the Army, uh, the only way that they could go forward would be fighting grueling, grueling battles where they would lose many troops over time. And it was accepted with Japanese on this island. They didn't expect a victory. They thought that they would lose these islands and um, eventually die there. But try to exact a terrible price from Americans. So what it looks like on these islands are slow siege-like situations. Every strong point has to be isolated from adjoining positions. Sometimes each position is reduced to -to hand-to-hand fighting. Troops have to get out flamethrowers to make sure uh, caves are cleared. Uh, they call it the blowtorch. So this uh, affects uh, later battles um, with Iwo Jima and other areas, but it's absolutely grueling. I think there's an episode of um, the Pacific, the HBO miniseries, where you see the troops, the American troops, just at their absolute wit's end. They're at their breaking point with how much devastation and bloodshed and carnage they're seeing. And it's at this this stage with that uh, going from island to island and just going from came to cave to cave it's brutal yeah they do have an episode on Peleliu, and it's it's really great like the whole series yeah by now the ja- japanese had become masters of defense and masters in exacting as much blood and carnage as they possibly could from their attackers we've seen this before for example at tarawa and we will definitely see it again in the future after the 10 weeks of fighting Nearly all the island's 10,000 Japanese defenders were killed. Only 19 were captured, plus about 200 foreign laborers. Of the 20,000 Marines who landed, 1,000 were killed and nearly 5,000 were wounded. This was the most costly American amphibious invasion to date. It was even bloodier than Tarawa. On average, the U.S. used about 1,500 rounds of artillery to kill each defender. That's... Not very efficient. That's a lot of artillery expended. Ian Toll writes this. He said, Marines who had fought on multiple Pacific Island battlefields agreed that Peleliu was the worst, at least up until that point. Now, I think things are well. I know things are going to get even worse, but you'll have to wait for that. And what's, what's kind of sad about it is that the invasion of Peleliu may not even have been necessary because there were so few Japanese planes there. Naval historian Craig Simons, who I've quoted many, many times and will continue to, he says it's, quote, one of Nimitz's few errors of the war, end quote. Right. And if there's anything positive out of Peleliu, it's not so much what American forces did there, but what they would do later in response to it. So much larger battles that would come later, like Iwo Jima and Okinawa, which we'll talk about, of course, that were larger, they're much more strategically important than Peleliu. The lessons learned at Peleliu and the awareness of Americans that Japanese tactics had shifted were learned there. So this allowed them to change up their models, uh, revisit them, 
which um, Okinawa and Iwo Jima, I think, could have very well been much worse if these lessons had not been learned. But we'll cover that all later, of course. Yes, definitely. All right, so we're getting closer to the Philippines. Before we do so, though, let's let's kind of see what the Japanese fleet is looking like these days. Now, the Japanese Navy's air arm had pretty much been destroyed, almost destroyed in the Battle of the Philippine Sea, but they still had a powerful surface Navy, and they included the super battleships that we've mentioned a few times in the past, Yamato and Musashi. Y Yamato displaced about 74,000 tons, and Musashi was, I think, about 68,000. Okay, I may be off a little on those, but those are way, way bigger than the largest American battleship. In addition to those super battleships, they had six other battleships, 15 heavy cruisers, and many destroyers that were armed with long lance torpedoes. Those are very effective torpedoes. James here, and now a brief word from our sponsors. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. So what do you think about this Yamato, um, Scott? It's unsinkable, right? I mean, it's awesome. It's impressive. But it's sort of like making the greatest, most gigantic 1978 Cadillac 
And then the oil crisis happens and zippy little Econo boxes are going around you. Yeah. And it's great. It's great for what it is, but it's not suited for the times anymore. And we talked about the Yamato and uh, the Musashi earlier that they um, aren't right for the times. And then later episodes, we'll see the fuel shortages with Japan. And we have a fuel shortage. That's not great when you have a super battleship. Um, but just one little thing to kind of give a fact to see how battleships don't really work anymore, except for one point in the Battle of Leyte Gulf, is that um, aircraft carriers, no matter how good a battleship is, an aircraft carrier will be better. Because um, even if a gun a battleship can shoot at an incredible rage, with that, which the Yamato could, up to 30 kilometers, uh, that's versus an aircraft carrier that has hundreds of planes each carrying about a 2,000-pound bomb over a range of 150 kilometers. So you have multiples of the reach advantage, and you simply can't compete. And all those resources, I think, would have been much better put in aircraft carriers or arguably submarines. But we'll you know save that for a future episode. Yes. All right. So the problem that the Japanese fleet faced at this point, other than uh, well, I mean, it's we've already talked about the lack of airplanes. They didn't have air cover. They had almost no air cover. There were few carriers left, and there were few planes and even fewer experienced pilots. Japanese air production barely kept up with losses. Another big problem was the continuing lack of aviation fuel. Scott uh, touched upon this a minute ago. Fuel is running out. This not only made it hard to keep planes in the air and ships on the sea, but it also prevented pilot trainees from getting enough hours of training. Uh, we talked a while ago about how they were watching films as part of their training instead of actually flying. Uh, they're just if you couldn't if you couldn't keep your warplanes up in the air, you cer they certainly weren't going to use a lot of fuel for training purposes. The only good source of fuel remaining for the Japanese was near Sumatra. And because of this, the Japanese fleet was stationed at Lingo Roads off the northern coast of Sumatra. All right, now we move to Japan's plan. Japan knew that the United States' next target was going to be the Philippines. They didn't know exactly where, but they knew it was the Philippines. And so they planned a new offensive called Operation Shogo, which means victory operation. This was designed to stop the American recapture of the Philippines. They knew if the Americans captured the Philippines it was going to be almost impossible to maintain that supply line from uh, what is now Indonesia, but back then was the Dutch East Indies and those and New Guinea, Borneo, and all those places where they were getting their fuel. They would not be able to maintain that supply line back to the home islands. Yeah, so I mean, a couple of the other um, these uh, plant these operational plans. There's a few nested within this. They're much more defensive than earlier in the war, of course, but. Seems like Japan is still seeking that decisive naval engagement as if they can just hope, all right, we're going to bring all of our forces together and go our way, then we can decisively sink the American fleet. This idea that's gone all the way back to Midway and even Pearl Harbor. Mm -hmm. Another mm -hmm. idea is, well, hey, naval history teaches us when the Spanish Armada was sunk by bad weather that saved England or the Battle of Lepanto when the European Holy League uh, was able to defeat the Ottomans. I don't know. Um, so there's a number of victory plans. One is for the defense of the Philippines, like what James was saying. Another is for the defense of the Ryukis Islands. Another is to protect the southern and central portions of Japan. And the fourth is to protect uh, northern Japan. Uh, though 
way that they deal with the lack of aircraft carriers is to construct strong defensive positions while inland and out of the range of American naval guns. They're also hoping that the Yamato and Musashi could engage the American fleet and do what they were designed to do, and they would be supported by land-based planes at the time. So anyway, that's the plan, um, and our friend, Admiral Ozawa, is part of this, and I understand that he wants to take a page of uh, Sun Tzu and do some deception. Do I have that correct? Yes. The the Japanese knew that they couldn't win a naval battle if you just throw in everything at, at the American everything and just go toe-to-toe. That's not going to work. So as they've often done in the past, they're going to try to rely upon stealth and secrecy, dividing the American force, the old, the age-old military tactic they went back thousands of years of you know try to cut off and isolate one portion of the enemy force and destroy it and then go and take another piece out and so on so what they wanted to do was send from the north a decoy force it's designed to lure away at least part of the american fleet and destroy it and that force scott mentioned is under our old friend admiral jisaburo ozawa who was also one of the main commanders of the Japanese fleet at the Philippine Sea. Do you remember the his claim to fame, what we talked about, Ozawa? Do you remember that, Scott, what, what he was famous for among the Japanese Navy? Uh, he was tall and ugly. Yeah, uh, that's yeah. It. yeah. He was supposedly the, the ugliest sailor in the entire Japanese Navy. And again, I've been looking at photos of him, and he, I don't think he's ugly at he all. He can sink a destroyer <laughs> just by looking at it. That's right. <laughs> Six foot seven, you know, he was, I think he was being scouted by the New York Knicks, <laughs> possible NBA contract. No, I just made that up. But anyway, so the plan was for Ozawa's force to come down from the north, as I mentioned, to lure the American battle fleet, which was Halsey's fleet. Most of it, anyway, the, the main part that Halsey was in personal command of, away from the landing beaches. Ozawa had the Zwikaku, which is the last surviving carrier from Pearl Harbor and Midway. He also had three smaller carriers and he had two small hybrid carriers. Those had been converted from another type of ship. Altogether, though, they had fewer than 100 aircraft. That's it, 100, which is way fewer than they had had at Midway and Coral Sea and and certainly far fewer than the Americans have. But even Ozawa didn't really have a lot of faith in this mission. He kind of saw it as a suicide mission. He didn't think he was going to be returning to Japan. So while he is trying to lure away part of the American fleet, the plan was for another admiral named Takeo Kurita. Kurita's surface force would arrive from the south and destroy the American invasion force. In addition to the Yamato and the Musashi, he also had five smaller battleships, 14 heavy cruisers, and six light cruisers. But again, no air cover. And if Ozawa was unable to draw Halsey's fleet away from the Philippines, it would not be able to destroy Kurita's force. So it's a good plan. It's kind of the, you know, look, look, look over here. And they run off and then you sneak in from behind and get the ones that didn't run, run to the decoy. We'll see if it works. Japan's leaders thought the Americans would target either the southern island of Mindanao. And I should let me give a mental map of the Philippines. And this is a very difficult one. So <laughs> what basic. Yeah. Uh, never before have I so strongly recommended that you actually pull up a real map. The Philippine 
islands have over 7,000 islands, almost 7,100. Uh, but the, lar- the two largest ones are Luzon, which is in the north. Luzon has the capital city of Manila. It has Manila Bay. It has the Bataan Peninsula that we talked, Peninsula, maybe say that right, uh, which we talked about way long time ago with the Bataan Death March, and then the, the fortress island of Corregidor. Just south of that is one of the larger islands, Mindoro. And then further down in the south, at the bottom extreme part of the Philippines, you have the second largest island, which is Mindanao. And then between Luzon and Mindanao, Mindanao's in the south, Luzon's in the north. Between there, you have a lot of open water. You have the Sibuyan Sea, you have uh, the Surigao Strait, and then you have lots of islands. One of the islands in between Luzon and Mindanao, just north of Mindanao on the west side or right side, if you're looking at a map, I'm sorry, east, east side, that's Leyte. And just to the west, I did it again, sorry, just to the east or to the right on a normal north-south map is Leyte Gulf. The Japanese had assumed that the Americans would land at Mindanao, which was the as I said, the southernmost island, big island, it contained a naval base, or possibly they thought the Americans might land at Luzon, the large island in the north, which contained, as I said, Manila. But instead, the Americans chose Leyte, a medium-sized island between the two larger ones. Leyte had very good landing beaches and level land on which an, an airfield could be built. And again, the body of water Next to the landing beaches was called Leyte Gulf. And so that's what this battle will get its name from, even though it's kind of like Guadalcanal. We talked about a while back, Guadalcanal sometimes is just called the Battle of Guadalcanal, but it was really a campaign in which you had, gosh, close to 10 separate battles. So Leyte Gulf is going to have four really separate battles, and we'll talk about those one by one eventually. So Admiral Carita, he's the one that's coming from the, the southwest. His orders were, quote, rush forward and destroy the enemy transports before they disembark their troops, end quote. But he was convinced he would not even make it until after the soldiers had landed, and therefore he would probably find just empty transports. Who wants to go blow up a bunch of en- empty transports, Scott? There's no fun I mean, in that. Better Let's... than nothing, but really it's, um, I don't know. Well, it's again, not satisfying. It's, yeah, it's not satisfying, and you've got this idea of the decisive battle. He wanted to go after the big ships, the capital ships. And the Japanese high command agreed, and they issued Operations Order 87, which stated that the targets of Japanese warships were to be aircraft carriers, battleships, and troop transports in that order. In the Imperial Japanese Navy, as in the United States, to Kurita as to Halsey, the pull of the decisive battle was irresistible. This is a quote mm. from Craig Simons, by the way. I forgot to mention that. This is Craig Simons. Yeah, I like that. The pull of the decisive battle was irresistible. And it's not just for the Japanese. It's for the Americans, too. Simons goes on to say, for both men, that meant sinking the enemy's carriers. Each would soon have an opportunity to fulfill that vision. Now, Admiral Kurita div- divided his force into two parts. The main force, which is going to be called the Center Force, under his personal command, would sail through the San Bernardino Strait, which is south of Luzon, and approach Leyte Gulf from the north. The second part of the force, 
called, not surprisingly, the Southern Force, because it's going to come up from the South, would be under Admiral Shoshi Nishimura. It would go through the island chain at the Surigao Strait, which is just north of Mindanao, and hit the American fleet at Leyte from the South. Nishimura's fleet would also soon be reinforced by a smaller fleet under Vice Admiral Kiyohide Shima. Okay? So, once again, we've got uh, the center force, which is kind of in the, in the center. Surprise, surprise. You know, it's going through the middle of the Philippines. The southern force, which is coming up through the southern uh, part, uh, the open water part that I was talking about, just north of Mindanao. And then you've got the decoy force, which is coming from the north. But these two, the center force and the southern force are going to be, hopefully, at least the plan is for them to be a naval double envelopment. And Ooh. Yeah, how about that? We're going to hit the hit the Americans from the north and from the south at the same time. Uh, Ian Toll calls the Japanese plan of attack virtually a naval bonsai charge. You know, they realize that the chance of success probably isn't all that great. But hey, maybe if Ozawa is able to pull off a good chunk of Halsey's fleet, then maybe they can catch the Americans by surprise and hit them hard and wipe them out at least wipe out a good chunk of the fleet before they know what's happening. Double envelopment. Okay. We're a little bit of shades of Hannibal of Carthage, uh, battle of Canae. Yes. And, um, interesting that we have a kind of a mirror image of Halsey and Carita, similar temperaments as Naval commanders. Mm-hmm. Um, listeners knew in the previous episode that I'm very much a Spruance partisan. And I can't help but think that, Spruance were there, he wouldn't be pulled into anything and he would act rationally and wouldn't fall for any kind of decoy attack. But although I know how things will turn out, um, my if I didn't know, I, my instinct would be, hmm, Halsey's really going to bungle this. But you know what? I'm not going to give anything away. So you can decide for yourself because you need, you need people like him in battle as well. So I'm not saying that Halsey's are always bad. So anyway, I'm looking forward to seeing how this plays out. We should put up a poll in... History unplugged <laughs> and, and in uh, American history fanatics, you know, are you Team Halsey or Team Spruitz? <laughs> yeah, I'll make some T-shirts on Cafe Press. See what I can do. Yeah, that would be great. All right, so here we come to the first of the sub battles, if you will. And this is October twenty third, nineteen forty four, the Battle of Palawan Passage. The Palawan Passage is uh, kind of in the, in the in the middle. It's actually it's. It's near the island of Palawan, which is somewhat to the west of the other islands. It's kind of cut off. Not not cut off, but it's just a little bit distant from Luzon and Mindanao. And the Palawan Passage, of course, goes right by it. Just after midnight on October 23rd, two American submarines spotted the center force west of the Philippines. Those doggone pesky submarines, Scott, they're always (laughs) foiling the Japanese plans for secrecy. James here. And now a brief word from our sponsors. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And they didn't just spot them this time. They didn't just radio in the position of this advancing fleet. They went on the offensive. So about 5.30 a.m., the two subs attacked, and they sank two cruisers. You know, cruisers, remember, those are big ships. They're not as big as battleships, but they're still quite big. And they heavily damaged another one. And the, uh, the two cruisers, of course, went down to the bottom, and the other one that was damaged turned around and went back toward the Japanese base. And it was escorted by two destroyers. So there you go. One, two, three, four, five of the ships gone before they even get to the main part of the Philippines. They, before they get anywhere near Leyte Gulf. From the sunken cruisers, only 600 Japanese sailors survived. And this is significant, including Admiral Kurita. Admiral Kurita, the supreme, or not supreme commander, but the overall commander of this fleet, had to be fished out of the water. His ship was sunk. He went into the drink, and they had to pull him out. That must have been a very traumatic Not experience. very dignified. Yeah. No, and I think it's going to affect his performance later, but more on that to, be, to come. The, and, of course, the submarines also alerted Halsey about the sighting. Admiral Halsey immediately sent planes to search for the other ships in the center force, and they're going to find them the next morning. All right, so that leads us... Uh, to the next day, which is October 24th. Did you want to say anything about any comments on that little um, mini battle? Let's, let's go to that one, the Sibion Sea, because I uh, want to give a requiem for one of our big ships that are going to go down, but I'll, you can kick that off there. Okay, that sounds good. So the Sibion Sea is basically right in the middle of the Philippines. It's south of Luzon, north of Mindanao. It's... Uh, it's just to the southeast of the island of Mindoro, which is just south of Luzon. Anyway, uh, you got to have a map on this one, people. It's, it's, the Philippines are very complicated. I don't even think uh, the best mental map person in the world could give you a great mental map on this. Maybe so. I don't know. I'm certainly not the best, but I'm trying, folks. So, so now uh, at 8 a.m. on the 24th, Halsey issued the following order. Strike. Repeat. Strike. Good luck. I love Halsey's orders. <laughs> and planes from two of his carrier groups 
blew off and they attacked the center force. They heavily damaged the heavy cruiser Miyoko and they hit the super battleship Musashi. And I'll let Scott say what happens to the Musashi, but during these attacks, Kurita kept on going. He didn't give up. He continued on his eastward course. He's bound and determined to get through the Philippines and get to Leyte Gulf. What happened to the Musashi, Scott? Well, the Musashi did not do what it was built to do to engage in a decisive battle, as its engineers would have hoped for. Uh, so what's interesting about when it goes down is, like what James says, there's uh, planes from the Halsey's carrier groups, about 260, and they're swarming the Musashi for over five hours. They hit it with 17 bombs and 19 torpedoes. Uh, there were 10 American aircraft that got hit by Japanese anti-aircraft, but this is uh, the first time that a battleship is sunk by carrier planes without any assistance whatsoever by surface combatants. Uh, no battleship or destroyer or anything helping, you know, delivering damage as well. It's just the planes that are doing this. So to underline again how uh, much the how naval warfare and strategy has changed in these few short years. So this isn't the last time it'll happen, but this is the first. Yeah, it kind of gives me the impression of like a great big grizzly bear being attacked by a thousand bees or something, you know, <laughs> or wasps being stung again and again and again and again until it finally just keels over. So, yeah, there goes one of the two giant battleships. And Karita kept heading eastward toward Leyte Gulf, but finally by 3.30 he had had enough, at least for now, 3.30 p.m., and Karita ordered the Central Force to turn around and head back toward the west, you know, back toward the base. But he wasn't planning. He was not bugging out. He was just uh, regrouping. He was going to regroup and, and just try to get to a place where he's not being constantly attacked by American planes. But he'll be back. About the same time that Halsey ordered the attack on the center force, scout planes found Nishimura's southern force. They inflicted heavy damage on both of Nishimura's battleships. Ironically, the Americans had not yet spotted Ozawa's decoy force coming from the north, but they had, as we've seen, found both parts of the main force. So they found the center force and the southern force, but not the northern decoy force. Soon, far north of the Sibuyan Sea, Ozawa's planes attacked the northernmost of Halsey's carrier groups. But most Japanese planes were shot down. One pilot, David McCampbell, shot down nine zeros in a single flight. Wow. Can you imagine? Now that's incredible. He takes off one morning, and when, by the time he lands, he's shot down nine enemy planes. His feat, this feat was unmatched in the war, and McCampbell received the Medal of Honor. One Japanese plane hit and sank the escort carrier USS Princeton. But other than that, there wasn't a whole lot of damage to the American fleet. So this was the, uh, the second battle. The, this is the Battle of the Sibuyan Sea. Um, go ahead. All right. Well, yeah, so this is interesting that um, the main force, um, had they swapped it out, the main force been the decoy force, maybe this could have worked, um, but Americans just happened to spot the main force. So curious right. uh, what a strategist like Ozawa does when things get turned backward, his plans get turned backwards in the middle of the battle. So... How does he uh, improvise with this? Okay. Uh, 
So at about 4.30 p.m. on that same day, a scout plane announced the presence of a large Japanese fleet approaching from the north. This, of course, was Ozawa's fleet. The fleet had four carriers, two light cruisers, and five destroyers. Halsey decided to have his carriers attack the northern Japanese fleet. He pointed to a spot on a map and said, here's where I'm going. And then he told his chief of staff, Admiral Robert Mick Carney, Mick, start them north. I love Halsey's, uh, <laughs> his, he's a man of few words, at least sometimes. And he assumed that Kurita's force was so badly beaten that Kincaid's 7th Fleet could handle it. So just to remind everybody, Kincaid's 7th Fleet was sitting in Leyte Gulf. Kurita's force, which was the center force, as we just saw, had come from the west and was moving toward the Philippines. But it had been hit so badly, including the sinking of the Musashi, that it turned around and went back. And that, that's what led Halsey to believe that they were done. He thought Kurita was bailing out, and, and that would be the end of that. But he was wrong. Halsey radioed Kincaid, Central Force heavily damaged according to strike reports, and proceeding north with three groups to attack Carrier Force at dawn. And this uh, message caused some problems, first because it did not reach Kincaid for several hours, and it was unclear. Halsey had four carrier groups, but he only mentions three. So Kincaid assumed that the fourth group would be left behind to support him. But that was not the case. Yes. You think you would, um, you know, be a little bit more clear when we're talking about hundreds of thousands of tonnage of aircraft, you know, maybe really be clear on specified ships. I don't know. I mean, I'm maybe yeah. I'm just talking crazy talk here. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I got Come on, Scott. Um, yeah. Halsey didn't do a great job of communication here. That's for certain. It went to the Robert E. Lee school of battlefield commands. Oh yeah. <laughs> Take that hill if practicable. Anyway, in between when Halsey contacted Kincaid and when Kincaid received the message, Halsey did something else. He ordered the creation of a new unit called task force 34, which consisted of four battleships, five cruisers and 19 destroyers with the idea of sending it to attack Ozawa. But Halsey didn't tell Kincaid about Task Force 34. <laughs> you might want to let your subordinates know what's going on, especially when they're counting on you. And the funny thing is, is Kincaid, Kincaid received the message anyway. They just picked it up. And, they, and, and you can imagine Kincaid, well, what is, what is he talking about? What is this Task Force 34? He thought it, this was something that was going to stay behind to guard the San Bernardino Strait. Uh, and that so that he could focus solely on Nishimura's fleet. I know this is complicated, but he this Nishimura remembers the southern fleet coming up from the south. And so Kincaid thought, well, okay, I'll take on Nishimura. This new Task Force 34 is going to take on Kurita if and when he comes back. And the rest of Halsey's fleet will go north to take on Ozawa. But that's not what Halsey had in mind. Halsey was taking everything north. He left nothing to guard the strait, even after he received intel indicating that Kurita had turned back toward the strait. So Halsey is really rolling the dice here. Halsey's carriers launched a total of 527 sorties. He sank all four of Ozawa's carriers, including, including the Zuikaku, and that matched the fleet at, the feet at Midway. Okay, another four carriers gone. That was They'd sunk four carriers at Midway. Now they sink four more. But there's a problem because, as we've seen, Halsey's 
sent, he put all of his chips on the table, if, the table being the north. He sent everything north, and he sent nothing down to help Kincaid, who, by the way, is about to be attacked by two separate fleets. Uh, so would Kincaid's fleet be enough to stop the Japanese center force and the southern force from breaking through to Leyte Gulf and from interfering with the invasion of Leyte? That is the question that we will discuss in our next episode. Yeah, how's wow. That, how's that for leaving them hanging, Scott? <laughs> well, I just, I mean, without getting into what happens, um, I would love to read the after-action report of this battle because there'd have to be so much that would be learned of, okay, there was a major communications breakdown that happened here that shouldn't have happened here because um, basic information like who is in our task force, how many will be left behind of um, not leaving somebody stranded expecting uh, many more ships to support them that are. So uh, this must have made one incredible after-action report when all was said and done. And I imagine what it, it said, what we have here is a failure to communicate. <laughs> uh, maybe not, but anyway. All right. So, one loop. Yeah, <laughs> there's another pop culture reference from the 60s. All right, folks, so that is the end of this episode. You will just have to wait another week to see what happens. So join us next time as we wrap up the epic battle of Leyte Gulf. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you would like to support this podcast and help it to grow, there are four things you can do. First, you can subscribe to the podcast and leave a review on the podcast player of your choice. This helps other people to find the podcast. Ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts are especially helpful. Second, join our Facebook group, which is called American History Fanatics where we discuss the episodes of this podcast as well as other topics related to American history. Third, tell as many friends as you can about the show. Fourth, you can join the elite unit called Early's Raiders by going to patreon.com and searching for key battles of American history. There are five different levels of support to choose from. Each level allows you to have early access to ad-free episodes. Higher levels bring additional benefits, including bonus episodes, and even the ability to commission episodes on topics of your choosing. Before I close, I would like to give a shout-out to the current members of Early's Raiders. Thanks to Majors Chris C. and Bob McCullough, Captains Jenny Kateri, Jeff Henley, Grant Holstrom, Jose Martinez, and Melissa Mueller, and Lieutenants Matthew Christensen, Scott Hendricks, and Jeff Sabo. I greatly appreciate your support. Thank you for listening to Key Battles of American History. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast catcher. And please be sure and spread the word about the show. If you can spare a few minutes, rate and review the show at Apple Podcasts. This greatly helps us to reach more listeners. And for show notes, maps, and further discussion, visit our website at www.keybattlesofamericanhistory.com. Thank you, and we look forward to joining you again in the next episode of Key Battles of American History.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.